there's really nothing that our body can do like what a vaccine can do. There's not a substitute for a vaccine in helping our bodies develop antibodies to this virus so that it can respond quickly. Welcome back to HealthWave. I'm Mitchell Nail, and at HealthWave, we believe your health matters because you matter, and we hope you're healthy and well today. Today's program is brought to you by St. Bernard's Healthcare, a trusted provider of comprehensive, compassionate healthcare services that reaches 23 counties in Northeast Arkansas and Southeast Missouri. St. Bernard's flagship facility, St. Bernard's Medical Center, located in the heart of Jonesboro, Arkansas, for 121 years now, houses the only level three trauma center and neonatal intensive care unit in the region. For every stage of life, St. Bernard stands ready to serve you through education, treatment, and health services. In this episode, we're taking a quick break from our heart care series to once again give COVID-19 a brief but hard look. This past spring, we thought we'd turn a corner with COVID-19 vaccines becoming widely available and consequently COVID hospitalizations plummeted and life became nervously normal for a time. Well, that all changed as the virus mutated. I'm sure by now that we're all familiar with the words Delta and variant, but they really have changed how we as a society approach this virus. Joining me today to drill down on everything we should know is Dr. Casey Holder. And Dr. Holder is the Vice President of Medical Affairs for St. Bernard's Medical Center in Jonesboro. And she has spent the better part of the past 19 months completely immersed in the latest therapies, approaches, and preventions of COVID-19. As background, she's a hospitalist by trade, and she's called Arkansas home all her life. In fact, she's a Northeast Arkansas native, and she joined St. Bernard's nearly a decade ago to help start the Adult and Pediatric Hospitalist Program. Six years ago, she moved into an administrative role as Vice President of Medical Affairs. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Holder. Thank you for having me. Well, jumping right into the questions, from both a physician and a healthcare administrator's perspective, what was it like to have a reprieve in the middle part of this year from the virus only to face a variant that's more transmissible and likely more virulent? So we did get a brief respite, and we were able to go back to some normal daily operations, which was nice, but we didn't ever really relax. We knew that that really wasn't the end of it all, and so we were just sort of anxiously awaiting for the other shoe to drop, and we took a little bit of comfort knowing that we had a vaccine available now, and it was very, very effective and readily available, and, you know, we just also felt like we've done this, we've been through this, we know we can do it again if we have to, so we felt really ready. And then we had the curveball thrown at us, the Delta variant. So that was rather disheartening. I honestly felt like, yes, we're going to have more surges. But I was naive in thinking that they wouldn't be as significant as, as what we saw in the winter. And again, the Delta variant just really changed that for us. So what we're seeing now is really different than what we saw in the fall. Obviously, as you mentioned, the variant's much more transmissible. It's causing more severe illness. We're seeing it in younger adults and kids. So we're really right now facing a totally different pandemic than we were last year. This is kind of a crude analogy, but to me, it seems somewhat like a like two earthquakes when you talk about the waves rather than that aftershock that's, you know, not as big as the initial earthquake. Maybe that's what you were expecting, those aftershocks. Yes. But, but instead, we got a second earthquake. We got a whole nother earthquake. We sure did. <laughs> well, Dr. Holder, briefly describe the current hospital and ICU situation. And I'm not just talking about what you're seeing at St. Bernard's, but statewide. 
right? Even beyond, because of the way you guys are operating now, it's on a multi-state basis. This is a national fight. It is. Our healthcare facilities in our region and in our state and really all across the southern United States right now are just being stretched really, really thin. And that's from a number of perspectives. So, you know, you when you talk about bed capacity, that's a concern. Just having a room and a bed available when a patient needs it, and then that that bed is in the right location with the hospital so that the level of care that's needed can be provided. So that's been a concern I know many hospitals have faced, and many hospitals have done just like we have and, and converted spaces within the hospital to patient care areas that weren't typically patient care areas just to do whatever we could to expand our capacity to be sure we could take care of our patients. But staffing is the other part that has been a significant concern. And I know that has extended outside of healthcare even, but just having the physicians, the nursing staff, all the ancillary staff to take care of not only the increase in volume of patients, but the increase in acuity. You know, these patients are sicker than they were and they require more resources. And so that's been something that we've seen that's really nationwide is the staffing concerns. Well, putting your administrator hat on, what's the answer to that? Or is that something that if you knew the answer, you would just quit your job because you could retire? Right. Yes. Yeah. I sure wish I knew the answer to that, but I don't. You know, we've we've gotten as creative as, as we can and, and really tried to utilize as many resources as we can. But, you know, they're tired. They're just tired. They've been at this a long time. And it's not only just a physical toll that it takes on you working such long hours and so hard, but it's really more that emotional toll that we are seeing. And so well-being of our staff has been another area that we've really tried to focus. And Dr. Holder, we're hearing that the vaccines are less effective against this Delta variant. I know that's a cause for concern, that sentence in and of itself. But why should someone still get vaccinated, especially if they've recently had COVID? Maybe they've even had Delta. Sure. You know, it is something we need to pay attention to. I would say at this point, it's not a huge concern, primarily because the COVID vaccines are so effective. Just to put it in perspective, a flu vaccine typically is about 40 to 60 percent effective at preventing infection. So here we have this COVID vaccine that's initially 92 to 95 percent effective. So even with this reduced efficacy that we've seen, they're still very, very effective vaccines. And it's also important to remember what we mean when we talk about the efficacy of a vaccine. So yes, we want to try to prevent infections. But more importantly than that, we want to try to prevent people who do get infected from getting really sick, having to be in the hospital, needing respiratory support, and certainly we want to try to prevent deaths. And and the COVID vaccines are still very, very effective in that regard. And so you, you should definitely take advantage of that vaccine to protect you, not only from becoming infected, but if you do develop an infection that you won't get severely ill. Now, if you've had COVID before, you most likely have some natural immunity. The concern there and why people that have had COVID are still recommended to get vaccinated is because that response, that natural immune response is so variable from person to person. So we just don't know, you know, I could develop an immunity that is significantly less effective than the immunity you might develop. So the level of protection, we just don't know how much that's going to protect someone from getting reinfected with COVID. And with different variants coming out, you know, if you're infected by one variant, you may still be able to get infected by another variant, much like we see in the flu season. People can get flu A and within the same season, they can get flu B. And so with the vaccine, we know that the immune response is robust and it's effective and that it's effective against many variants. 
experience. Kind of jumping around, since we're on the topic of vaccines, the Food and Drug Administration gave full approval to the Pfizer COVID vaccine. That's the only one out of the three. The vaccine itself hasn't changed from what it was, I guess, classified as emergency use authorization EUA. So what's the significance of full FDA approval? You know, an emergency use authorization is a tool that the FDA can use in certain scenarios. A pandemic is a perfect example of when you need to get a, a medical product out quickly. And so the difference between an emergency use authorization and a full approval is basically the amount of data that's available for them to review at the time. For an emergency use, they don't have all the data that they typically look at when they've got time to follow the process to the T to review for a full approval. So specific to the COVID vaccines, the FDA wanted to look at two months worth of data before they were willing to issue an emergency use authorization. And they did that because if you look historically at vaccines, any significant adverse events that occur, occur within the first eight weeks. So they wanted to look at at least two months worth of data to be sure that the vaccine was safe and effective. So the goal between an emergency use authorization and full FDA approval are really the same. They want to ensure the product, whatever it is that they're looking at, is safe and is effective. The difference is, do they have all the data that is required for a full FDA approval or sort of an abbreviated version of that, but they still require that there's enough for them to determine safety and efficacy. Now, I know you guys at St. Bernard's have been giving the Pfizer vaccine. Mm -hmm. I think you've given the Moderna some as well. We did get some. Mm -hmm. I realize there's a whole lot unpacking this question, but just briefly describe the differences between the uh, three vaccines. Okay. Because I know Pfizer and Moderna are, are quite similar. Mm-hmm. Johnson & Johnson, one shot, different technology. What are we looking at? Are any more effective than the others? Okay. So the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines use the same technology. They use the messenger RNA technology. And so they are really similar in their side effect profile and in their efficacy. Now, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine uses a different technology. It's what's called a viral vector vaccine. You know, you already alluded to the fact that it's one dose versus two. It has not been shown to be quite as effective, although it is definitely considered to be an effective vaccine. And it's had a little bit more trouble in regards to some of the the safety events that have been reported with it. But all of those after evaluation have been determined to be so rare that the benefit of vaccination outweighs the risk of those. So really, if you can get a vaccine, get a vaccine. You know, if you have access to whether it's Johnson & Johnson or Pfizer or Moderna, take that opportunity and get a vaccine. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Dr. Holder, we're hearing a lot about third doses, booster shots. Is there a difference between those two terms? Who needs them? And if someone does need them, when should they get them? So that is sort of an important distinction. So what is currently been approved is the additional dose, so a third dose, and this applies only to the messenger RNA vaccine, so Pfizer or Moderna, is a an additional dose for individuals that are moderately to severely immunocompromised. So the difference between that and a booster is that this additional dose is for individuals that likely did not have a sufficient immune response 
with the first two doses because of their immunocompromised status versus a booster, which has not been officially sort of approved and recommended yet, but talks are ongoing right now, is intended for individuals who did have a sufficient response initially, but over time, their immunity may have waned. And so they need a boost. They need a booster. So the additional dose or the third dose can be received 28 days after the second dose. The booster dose, the talk right now is that it will be available eight months after the second dose. And again, that's not been fully approved or recommended yet by the CDC or FDA, but definitely those discussions are in progress. I'm speaking with Dr. Casey Holder. She's the Vice President of Medical Affairs for St. Bernard's Medical Center. Dr. Holder, are there other variants waiting to take Delta Spot as our main source of COVID infections? We're hearing rumblings about Lambda and and others. Uh, What are your thoughts on that. Currently, there are, you know, about a handful of variants that are listed as variants of interest. And so what that means is those variants have been identified to have a mutation that could lead to the virus being more transmissible, causing more severe illness, or possibly being able to evade our immune responses to it. So then variants can be sort of upgraded to variants of concern once there's evidence that that is, in fact, the case, that those mutations do result in one of those three things. So yes, there's the mu variant, I think right now is the one that's getting the most attention is a new variant that was recently identified in Colombia that has several mutations that are concerning for possibly being able to evade immune responses, whether it's our natural immunity, our vaccine mediated immunity, or even the monoclonal antibody treatments. Right now, there are only four variants of concern. They're the alpha, beta, gamma, and delta, which of course we're all very familiar with. So that is the concern is that more variants can develop. So this is an important time to to sort of slip in that viruses can only mutate if they can spread. So it's really important to do what we can to minimize the spread, not only just for all of our health, but to prevent the development of variants that, you know, might be more contagious or more deadly or worst case scenario, our vaccines don't work against. And we certainly don't want that to be the case. I'm glad you brought that up. We've had some changing recommendations as this pandemic has gone on. Well, a few months ago, vaccinated people, the CDC came out and said, if you're fully vaccinated and you're around another fully vaccinated individual, you don't have to wear a mask. But those recommendations are different now. Are the recommendations an evolving situation or are we just learning more or is it both? It's really both. So pandemics are rare, fortunately. When we first went into this, it was a brand new virus. And so a lot of the recommendations were based upon, you know, previous experience or knowledge about other viruses and how they behave. Or maybe even supplies of certain resources. Exactly. Yeah. We just, you know, had to do the best with what we had available to us at the time. So as we move along and we learn, obviously, those recommendations have changed. And, you know, that's really how science works. That's the scientific method, right? You know, like my daughter is learning that in fifth grade right now. You have a hypothesis, you test it, you learn, and you adjust your recommendations. Recommendations. But I recognize for folks, you know, that are seeing this on this global scale now, it can create a lot of confusion and certainly 
distrust with all these changing recommendations that sort of makes it look like people don't know what they're talking about. And I hate that that's been the case, but you know, that is typically how science and medicine work is you have a hypothesis and you test it and you learn, and then you make adjustments to your recommendations. And that's really what's happened in this pandemic over the course of the last 18 to 20 months. Sounds like anything I work on, I get going on it and something goes awry and I have to make a slight adjustment. Yeah, you have to change course. Exactly. You have to change course. That's just happened on a grand scale with this pandemic. And it happened so quickly that there was a lot of change. And I understand the confusion that that's created. Dr. Holder, if a COVID infection occurs, obviously the first thing you should do is seek testing. Let's say the test comes back positive. What should someone do? Should they look into getting an infusion? If they do get an infusion, how well do those really work? The monoclonal antibody infusions are very effective. And the goal of those is to prevent folks from having to go to the emergency room or having to be put in the hospital or certainly from becoming severely ill and dying. And they have been shown to be effective at all of those. They're most effective when you receive them early on in your illness and they can't be given after 10 days. So what I would encourage folks is, you know, if you're diagnosed with COVID, especially if, you know, now you've got access to over-the-counter testing, if you diagnose yourself, you need to contact your physician to see if you qualify for one of those treatments. They're typically reserved for folks that have certain risk factors that they have an increased risk of becoming severely ill, and we want to prevent that progression. So please reach out to your physician to see if you're a candidate and get an early referral. We hear a lot of people talk about, you know, they're going to wait and see how they do, if their symptoms are going to get worse or not. Don't do that. The earlier, the better for those treatments. Is it fair to describe COVID's inflammatory response as somewhat of a snowball effect? It is. Right. And you reach a point of sort of no return, for lack of a better word, that a lot of our treatments can't reverse that pathway. If someone winds up in the hospital with COVID, what are the treatments and therapies given? You alluded to those. Mm -hmm. And is there anything hopeful on the horizon? First and foremost, a lot of folks end up in the hospital because they need oxygen. Their oxygen levels are too low or depending on the severity, they may even need some respiratory support that's more than just oxygen. But as you mentioned, our inflammatory response causes really more problem than the virus itself does. So a lot of our treatments center around that. So steroids is a mainstay of treatment for people that have severe illness to try to tamp down that inflammatory response. And there is a new medication actually just within the past, I'd say a month or so, that is a monoclonal antibody that's approved for use in the hospital. So the other monoclonal antibodies we had could only be used in outpatients. Then this is for hospitalized patients. It also works to try to slow down the inflammatory cascade to prevent damage from that. And then the other treatment we have that's one of the mainstays is a drug called remdesivir, which is an antiviral. So it actually works to disrupt viral replication. And so you try to stop the virus from reproducing within your body. And those are our three main treatments. There is some hopeful stuff on the horizon with those monoclonal antibodies. There's more of those that are being looked at for use in inpatients and those with severe illness. So I'm hopeful we'll have some more tools to add to our arsenal. Well, we're 19 months in. We've seen many patients recover. Of the ones who've recovered, are you guys seeing return trips of individuals who are just facing these, you know, continued complications 
lung issues, heart issues from their initial COVID infection. Yes, unfortunately, you know, we do see that where maybe they got over the initial infection, but they're still dealing with a heart rate issue or or problems with their lungs. Or more commonly, people just get so deconditioned or weak, you know, that they may fall or have to go into an inpatient rehab facility. And sometimes just being that sick exacerbates other chronic medical problems. So people may end up back in the hospital with heart failure or an exacerbation of their COPD or a heart attack. You know, it's just the stress on the body can make some of their other chronic medical conditions worse. And Dr. Holder, healthcare providers, as you talked about, desperately tried to find COVID treatments among already available medications to vary in success, obviously. You talked about steroids. You know, that makes sense when we're discussing an inflammatory response. But what are your thoughts on the different things that have been tried? Let's take ivermectin, for example, just because it's been in the news. Okay. So ivermectin is actually a, it is an FDA-approved drug, but it is approved for treatment of a parasitic worm infection. And of course, it's also approved for use in animals for heartworm prevention or treatment of a, of a parasitic worm. But it is not FDA approved for prevention or treatment of COVID. And all of our currently available data points to the fact that it is not effective in prevention or treatment of COVID. But not only that, but that it's potentially dangerous. What we've seen, unfortunately, is people are taking really high doses of ivermectin, which can be toxic, and they can cause GI problems, you know, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. They can cause low blood pressure. They can cause people to have trouble with their balance and be dizzy. More severely, they can cause seizures or coma or even death. So it is definitely not recommended. Even some of those side effects can occur with normal doses, even if folks aren't taking really high doses. Hydroxychloroquine is another example. I don't know that it's as big of a problem right now as ivermectin, but it certainly was early on in the pandemic. And that's a drug that is also FDA approved for treatment of certain autoimmune conditions. So lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, but again, not FDA approved for prevention or treatment of COVID, but being used in that regard. So same thing. Our data shows that it's not effective against COVID, but it is potentially harmful for people. And so the main complications we're seeing are people are having fatal cardiac complications. So certainly when you're trying to weigh risks and benefits, the risks of these medications outweigh the benefit of any protection or treatment of COVID that you're going to get. So if someone is telling you to take these drugs for COVID, that's incorrect information. You should not do it. Do you think that there's something out there that maybe we've overlooked some already available medication. I realize we're speculating at that point, but healthcare providers have really thrown a whole lot up against the wall just to see what sticks. Obviously keeping their patients' health in mind, but with patient safety being the number one focus, do you think we've missed something or do you think we're just far enough in the pandemic that it's going to take a new technology? Uh, No, I I think there is the potential that there are treatments out there that we use for other things. And, you know, just haven't had the time to test all of those to see their potential effectiveness against COVID. Certainly a new technology would be wonderful if we could develop something like that. That takes much longer than having something we already have access to and just finding that, hey, it works against this too. So I think not enough time has passed for us to really make that assessment to know there's so many potentials out there. And maybe we just haven't found the right one yet. I think that's kind of hopeful. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I try to be optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Holder, I've heard complaints that not enough focus has been given to overall health, overall wellness, nutrition during this pandemic, that your natural defenses are needed in this fight. And some folks say that's more important than the vaccine. What are your thoughts there? Because honestly, healthy bodies and vaccines are not mutually exclusive, right? Sure. It's all important. So obviously, the better health that you're in, the better able you are to fend off infection and then to recover if you were to have an infection. I am definitely an advocate for eating healthy, exercising, controlling all your other chronic medical problems. But there's really nothing that our body can do like what a vaccine can do. You know, there's not a substitute for a vaccine in helping our bodies develop antibodies to this virus so that it can respond quickly if and when it comes in contact with the virus. So there's just a limit to what we can do on our own. And I'm not aware of anything that can do for us what a vaccine can do for us. And nothing more immediate anyway. Right. Because it takes a while, especially if you find yourself in an unhealthy state. Mm -hmm. It takes a while to get healthy again. It does. It does. You know, that takes weeks to months sometimes, just depending on, on your starting point, which doesn't mean you don't start. You definitely start and the benefit occurs every day, but none of that's a quick fix. And even the vaccine, as quick as it is, is still really five weeks before you are considered fully protected. So I would encourage the same thing for people. Don't wait on that. Just go ahead and get that process started. And Dr. Holder, my final question to throw your way. We absorb so much information on social media channels and from news outlets about covid where can we actually go for reliable information, especially among those of us who are skeptics or understandably just don't trust the government or the large companies making these vaccines and therapies? Where do you look? Right. So it's important to get, you know, your information from multiple sources. The, the thing to be very mindful of is to make sure they are reputable sources. I refer a lot to the CDC and the FDA and our Arkansas Health Department. But again, as you mentioned, some folks have a, a bit of a distrust for some of those agencies. Agencies. So there are a lot of healthcare organizations throughout the country that are very, very well respected that are have nothing to do with the government or some of those government agencies. So you can go to their websites and look at the information that they've posted about COVID and the treatments and the vaccines. Just a few examples that I look at on occasion. So Johns Hopkins has a good website, the Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, and Cedar sinai all have dedicated sites on their their websites that are information specific to COVID. That's Dr. Casey Holder with St. Bernard's Medical Center. Dr. Holder, thanks for your time. Thank you. For more information about St. Bernard's Healthcare, you can visit their website, stbernards.info. That's S-T-B-E-R-N-A-R-D-S dot I-N-F-O. Or you can call the St. Bernard's Healthline at 870-207-7300. And we thank each of you for joining us on HealthWave. If you haven't hit that subscribe button yet, we ask that you do so, so you can know anytime we post new content. If you're already a subscriber, well, we appreciate you making us a part of your day. And if the podcast service you are using lets you leave HealthWave a rating, we ask that you leave us a five-star review. And that's just so that other folks can find us more easily. We also welcome your questions and suggested topics. You could submit those through social media by searching for St. Bernard's Healthcare on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and sending us a direct message there. That's all the time we have for this edition of HealthWave. And we hope you join us again on our next episode. For HealthWave, I'm Mitchell Nell. Thanks for tuning in. 